turn my mic up. Take there. Yeah, yeah, uh. On the road to the riches. Life takes a toll like bridges. Good friends become foes and snitches. Better watch who knows in your business. All right, all right, all right, Hustle Fam, Hustle Fam. We are back with another amazing episode. And today I am joined by a friend, a fellow transportation logistics supply chain expert guru. I don't know. You want to be called a guru? Is that a good word still? No, nah, well, man. I'm, I'm good with all the other ones. Expert okay. We'll, we'll be supply chain expert, uh, the co former co-founder. Well, you can't be the former because you still was a co-founder. Co-founder of Molo Solutions. You guys exited not too long ago. We'll talk about that. But now we're talking about journey, man. Journey. Um, so you got a lot of things going on, Will. But first yeah. of all, man, welcome to Truck and Hustle, man. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it, man. It's been great to get to know you over the last year or so and see what you've been working on, man. So thank you for having me. Yes, sir, man. Definitely, definitely been working and you've been working yourself, man. So when I first came across you on social media, uh, you were part of the Molo team. Um, mm -hmm. You guys were doing your thing, building an amazing freight brokerage, which you exited for how much? How much did you sell for? The business was acquired in November 2021 for $235 million. Okay. And of that two hundred thirty-five million, how much did you get? Man, I I did I did well. It was. <laughs> I try to come out hot. You know? coming out the gates hot. I, I try to come out hot. All right, we'll, we'll circle back around to that. But, All right, so you 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 built a, a freight brokerage with uh, your co-founder. Who else was a part of that team? Yeah, so such a crazy story. Kind of back up a little bit. Yeah. Um, so I met two of my business partners at Coyote Logistics. I used to work there from January of 2014 through January of 2017. Um, that's where I met Andrew Silver, who was a manager of mine. I was a manager on the shipper facing sales sell side. So I had eight outside or inside wraps that were selling to tons of different kinds of customers. And Andrew was the director of business development over that group. So that's how I met him. I also met Stefan Mathis, who was another one of our co-founders. Uh, he was one of the highest paid, highest performing carrier sales reps there. Um, and funny story about him, he actually tried to get me to be his ops rep when I first got out of training at Coyote. And that's how we fostered a relationship. He taught me a ton and still really, really good friend of mine. And then our president, his name's Matt Vogrich, was a friend of Andrew's from Michigan. Um, I started working on Molo end of April, beginning of May 2017. Um, I remember sitting down with Andrew, kind of talking about what it could be like to start an organization like Molo. And at that time, I was at Transport America for, I'd been there for like four months. And I was like, look, I'll leave tomorrow. Like we could, we could get busy, go ahead and do this right. thing. Um, right. So so I did. And Andrew had a non-compete. Um, he had just recently left Coyote. So he had a like year non-compete. So myself, Bogrich and Stefan launched the business July 5th of 2017. And we had a small as startup, a startup could get office in River North Chicago on Hubbard and Dearborn above a bar. And that's how it all got going. So that it, it was the four of us. Um, and, you know, originally in the first couple, first couple months, Stefan, Bogrich and myself getting everything off the ground and, and going from there. Got it. So, uh, some of the guys were at Coyote, you were at Transport America, you had been at Coyote previous to that. Why start a new business? What was the reason? Why did you guys want to start Molo? What was the, what was the, the, the motivation behind that? A couple of things. I remember sitting in a Starbucks 
with a friend of mine who was actually one of my sales reps during my time at Coyote. He was a business development sales rep. I managed him and, and a couple of other reps. And he was running some things past me, talking about some other brokerages. And I remember saying, man, that sounds really crazy to go and start a new one, right? He was kind of telling me about some of these organizations. And then I kind of got further down the road with Transport America. And they recently, at that time, purchased a brokerage called Optimal Freight. So I was a director of business development over there. And it was interesting because you start to see some of the things that all the rest of the places do. And you think to yourself, we could probably do this. Like this isn't too complex. It is definitely not easy, but you start to gain some confidence and go, maybe this is something that we could do. So sitting down with Andrew, then meeting Matt, then talking to Stefan and we're like, we're going to do this thing. I think a lot of it came from what we saw at Coyote. So that was really my first foray into transportation. I'm unbelievably appreciative for the people that I met there. Some people are still really good friends of mine, people that I learned a ton from, but we saw a world-class multi-billion dollar organization run exceptionally well, execute freight really well, train people well, give people an opportunity to grow. And we said, I don't know, man, why not us, right? We've seen it done and we feel like we've got the right network, maybe the right strategy to go and go do that. And probably the other element is like, if not now, when are we going to do it? Right. Like if it right. fails, we'll go get another job. Right. Like it's not, you know, it's not the worst thing in the world if you try something and it doesn't work. So I think it was maybe a little bit of like ignorance is best. Like you just go out there and try to figure it out. And if you fail, you fail. Like you don't really know. And um, it worked out really well. What was the motivation? Did you think you could do it better? Did you think you could compete? Like what? what I mean, because you had been there, you've been doing like you said, world class organization. They do things great. What were you going to be? What were you going to do different? Are you just going to be another cog in the wheel? Like what was going to be the differentiator that made, you know, Molo different from from Coyote specifically? Because that's where you kind of cut your teeth. But the other, you know, brokerages out there. I think there are a lot of organizations in the transportation space that do the same things. Right. So you're saying we execute freight better than anyone else or we've got a great culture or our technology is incredible. Right. You've got all these things that people say. Our biggest differentiator is we actually did it. <laughs> like, I don't like, you know, this this business is is not that complicated. We did not have crazy technology to begin with. We licensed an off the shelf technology and a TMS provider. We did not have this like crazy efficient platform to just like supercharge our people. We sold to customers that what we were going to do was pick up their freight and deliver it regardless of what was going on. And if that didn't happen, we we're going to tell them well enough in advance for us to be able to figure out a plan to get it done, right? That sounds like the easiest business strategy in the world. I promise to you, it is an actual differentiator in a space where most people do not do what they say they're going to do. And then you develop the relationships with customers that last for years to come because they know that you're reliable. Like this is truly a very simple industry, but at scale, it's hard to execute when everyone doesn't move the same way, right? When they don't have the same ideas of what the business was founded on, you start to see things crack, people make mistakes, customers aren't happy, et cetera, et cetera. Like, no, this is how we do it. This is the brand. This is how we execute freight. And the conversations we have with customers months down the line, after you onboard them and work with them, they reassure you that this is the right way to do business because they say things like, no one else communicates the way you all do. 
no one else executes when the market goes upside down. So during COVID, when everybody said, hey, rates are 30, 40% higher than what we quoted, take this freight back. We don't want it. We didn't do that. We said, if we quoted it, we're moving the freight. We want to develop this relationship long-term. Surprise, what do you guess what, you know, what do you think happened? Those customers gave us more business because mm. they knew we were the right partner to work with, right? We didn't leave them out to dry when things got dicey. Like anybody can do it when it's easy. Not everybody can do it when it gets hard. That's right. That's right. How, how did you get into the industry to begin with? I mean, what were you doing before Broker and Freight? How far back you want to go? Hmm. Let's go about, let's go like after college. What'd you do after college? Okay. So my first job after college was with Kimberly Clark Professional. Well, where'd you go to college? Let's start there. Yeah. Because I, I went, assumed you went to college. You seem like an educated gentleman. What a guy. Yeah, <laughs> I did. I did. Yeah. So I went to Illinois Wesleyan University in Bloomington. I played football there and I studied business with a focus in marketing. What position did you play? I played corner. Were you good? Yes. Very good? Yes. Okay. I, I would lock you up if you played. Did <laughs> you anybody lock me up? Bro. That's, not, <laughs> that's not saying much, but, uh, but go ahead. Yeah. I, I digress. Yeah, yeah. So I, I played football there. It was a good time. Had an opportunity to learn a lot from the game. I think it taught me a lot about perseverance and grit, but that's a whole nother side we'll probably dig into because sports, it I don't think Poor I would lakes. be who I am today if it weren't for a lot of the stuff I did you know, growing up playing sports. But my first job out of college was with Kimberly Clark Professional. They make Kleenex, so I was on their B2B side in Roswell, Georgia. I lived in Atlanta for a little bit, which was pretty cool. And I sold toilet paper, soap, sanitizer to office buildings and hotels. And I was by far the youngest person in their B2B sales group. I was 22 years old, and the job was probably way higher level than what I was actually qualified for. But I had some really cool sales experiences before I got into Kimberly Clark because of a job I got at 18. And I felt really prepared to be able to do that. So it taught me a lot about high level suit and tie, multi-million dollar sales deals. And from that, I lived in Atlanta for a little bit, got a promotion. I moved back to Chicago. Funny enough, two of my really good friends were sales reps at Coyote on, on their business development team. And all of us used to work at a company called Vector Marketing, which is the company that sells Cutco Kitchen Cutlery. That was my first job out of high school. Did that for door four door years. Sales? It was all cold calling. Cold calling, okay. It was insane. Yeah, I'll tell you some crazy stories, but it taught me a lot. So I did that for four years throughout college, which is what prepared me for the job with Kimberly Clark. I was at Kimberly Clark for about a year, and then I was looking for something new. My buddies were crushing it at Coyote, and it seemed really happy. And I interviewed at Coyote. I was like, man, this place is sick. Like, sign me up. Like, let's go do this thing. So I got what an was offer the environment from like there when you when you first walked in. What'd you see? It was like a boiler room, people hitting gongs and going crazy and jumping around. And what, what was it like? Talk to it me. was pre-gong days. There there were no gongs there. Uh, <laughs> but there was a lot of music. It was very, very buzzing, right? Like high the, energy. Man, it was crazy. Um, you know, people collaborating together. It was loud. It was unlike any corporate environment I'd ever been in. And coming from like sports and football and being used to being in competitive environments, I'm like, yo, this is sick. Like yeah, right. sign me up. So I right. I loved it. Did you did you even understand the space that you were in? Like, did you understand the the supply chain at all? Like, or did you just know like, I'm gonna I'm gonna go, I'm gonna be a salesperson? Or was it like I understand how I impact like what what you guys do and how it impacts the world? Okay, so 
before I started at Coyote, I had no idea about what my friends who worked there really did. I didn't know what logistics was. Obviously, I knew drivers picked up stuff and delivered it to warehouses and things of that nature, but I didn't know what a freight brokerage was, right? I had no idea about this subset of industry. So they actually have a really, really good training program and some pre-training materials that kind of helped me understand what I was stepping into. And so I felt relatively prepared from, I guess, an expectations, um, per, an expectations perspective to say, hey, like this is what y'all are asking me to do. This is where we sit in the supply chain in terms of executing for customers. And here's what my role is and whatnot. But before that, like, no, dude, I didn't know what logistics was. I had no clue. And what and, and walking in, you know, you know, new, what what is their expectation? Are they saying, hey, listen, Will, we need you to sell, you know, this amount of freight. If you can't cut it, you know, you might not make it here. What, what's that? What's that talk when you walk in the building? Man, so I started at Coyote 10 years ago, which is crazy. It, was, it would have been 10 years ago, like this week, which is nuts. Okay. Happy so, anniversary. Hey, thanks, man. Yeah. Happy, <laughs> happy freight anniversary. I, I don't really remember what the expectations were from a, I was on the carry sales team. So I don't remember how many loads they were expecting us to book at that point. But I do remember some like metric level things around you know, calls that you're supposed to make or offers to carriers. So how many loads are you offering to the carrier partners that you work with, which are things that you can track. Like when somebody's brand new, they don't have a book of business yet. As a carrier sales rep, you don't have carriers that you're working with. So the only way to get them to the point where they're able to book freight consistently is to track a lot of the effort metrics type stuff. Like how many phone calls are you making and how many loads are you actively offering to carriers? Not It's not perfect, but it's a good way to dictate whether someone's putting in the work to get to the point where maybe four or six weeks from now, they've got a more developed book of business with carrier partners that they work with. Was it intimidating? Absolutely not. I thought it was... I was built to do brokerage sales based on the stuff that I sold before. So like, I cannot explain to you how hard it is to sell Cutco because no one wants it and it's expensive. And so mm. people want it once they buy it because they're the best knives in the game. But my first job at 18, I was told to pick up my high school directory and cold call everybody in it, which I did. And I got hung up on a lot. I got yelled at by people this is stupid. We don't want to see the knives. Don't ever call me again. That's so expensive. I'm 18 years old. I'm like, dude, I went to high school with your son or daughter. You know who I am. <laughs> How could you treat I'm me like, like this? I'm like, yo, I'm like, yo, this is crazy. And right. I didn't even go to a huge school. The school had 400 students in it. So I'm like, I've seen you before. It's not like some random person, but right. the stuff that teaches you at a young age is that I can't take this stuff personal. Maybe they had a bad day. Maybe the last Cutco rep that showed them knives wasn't good or they were too pushy or whatever, right? It's all good. I need to make more calls because I get paid commission. So the more calls I make, the more appointments I set, the more appointments I set, the more chances I have to demonstrate Cutco, the more times I demonstrate it, probably make more sales. So I was used to selling in an environment where if I didn't sell, I didn't get paid, right? Like, it was a full commission job. And once you start making money, I'm like, all I want to do is keep cutting these checks, right? I want to make as many commission checks as I can. So when I got into brokerage sales on the carrier side, I was like, this is like, you telling me I got to call these cats and they own trucks and they want to use them? <laughs> like, <laughs> do you, it's not like the knives. <laughs> do you, like, do you understand what I'm saying? I'm like, bro, like, right, right, right. I'm going to call this driver and 
I'm like, hey, I got this load from Chicago to Atlanta, picks up at this time, delivers at this time, weighs this much, paying X. And then we figure out the rate. That's it. They might not want it. Maybe they say, hey, I don't go to Atlanta or like, I don't, you know, I don't like that shipper. I don't like whatever. But like they have a truck and they're going to use it. So I need to figure out which shipment works best for them. And they're going to book it with me. I'm like, yo, I'm used to selling people to stuff, some people stuff that don't want it. Like these dudes right. want these loads. Right, so right, right. it was not intimidating. I was like, this is sick. Got it. No, it make, that makes a lot of sense. So how much money did you make selling Cutco? What was, the, what was your best year? My first 10 days, I did 40 appointments at 18. I did 40 appointments across a 10 day period, which is called your fast start. They give you all these incentives to sell a bunch. You'll get a bunch of knives and you can win a trip. So I sold $10,000 worth of cut on my first 10 days. I made two grand. And at 18, I said, I don't think I want to go to med school. I think I want to, <laughs> I think I want to be in sales. This is incredible. So I probably made 10 grand that first summer. It was it's not nuts. bad at all. No, well, not for 18 year old kid. That's this not is, bad at all. This is all sick. right. So you, so you get, and you start at coyote. How old are you now? Just for context again, at when you start. Yeah. So I started at coyote and I was 23 at 23, 23 going on 24. And what is your earning potential at that age? What, what did what I you, earn my first what, year? What can you potentially make? Like, what are you looking at? Like when you walk in there, you're like, man, how much money can you make? Or are you, do you think you can make? Yeah. The sky I mean, is the limit. Yeah. The, the sky is the limit in a commission sales role for a company like that. The more freight you book, you're the more money you're going to be able to make. So I looked at it as I got to sit down, get on this phone and make as many calls as possible to cover as many, as many loads as I can. Got it. Do you remember what you made that first year? Yeah, I probably made like probably 55 or 60. I think my base was like 40K and I made like 15 or 20K in commission. Got it. Got it. When did you, like, how long did it take you to feel like getting your groove, feel comfortable with brokering freight? Like, was it like a right away thing or did it take a couple months? Like, when did you, you know? You want, you want me to shoot you straight? Shoot me straight, man. So, so straight. like the stuff that I learned from some of the mentors that I had selling Cutco prepared me to walk into a lot of interesting sales scenarios and feel comfortable. So I didn't know brokerage per se, or all the ins and outs of what a driver might want or what a good load is or a bad load, but I knew how to develop relationships with people in a sales capacity. And I also knew how to develop relationships with people that were better than me at what they did. So I would go ask them questions in like a mentorship capacity so that I could learn what they knew. And in my head, I'm like, if that kid can do it, I can do it. So I want to sit with them if they're the highest performer and just ask questions. So I remember day one, shout out to my guy, Drew Herpick. He is the chief commercial officer at Nolan Transportation Group. But when I was at Coyote, he was, I believe, a general manager that oversaw the carrier sales team, right? right. And day one, you walk in, you do a little orientation, you got some training stuff. We had a lunch and I walked up to him because he was there. I said, Drew, what do I need to do? to be where I would have been if I would have started at Coyote right out of college. Cause I started at Coyote like 18 months after I graduated from Wesleyan. Mm -hmm. And I, in my head felt like I was behind. Behind, right. Yeah, and okay. I'm like- Good question, Wait, good, good way to frame that. Yeah, I said, look, I'm a dog, right? So if you're telling <laughs> me this is what I gotta do, I'm going to do it. I, I don't care, I want to go make a lot of money and I would like to advance my career. So you tell me what to do. And he pointed to a guy named Bill Halloran, who was an extremely talented, high performer on the carrier sales team. And he said, go sit with Bill 
and asked Bill some questions about how he built his book. I think Bill had been there for maybe six years, maybe a little bit longer. And from that point on, training started at 8 a.m. I would be in the office by like 6.50 a.m. And I would spend the first hour every day with Bill Halloran or someone that Bill recommended me to go sit with that was also a high performer in carry sales. And I would just ask questions. I would put the headset on and like sell loads to carriers on behalf of this person that was like teaching me some stuff. And the yeah. training process was like a month. So probably three weeks, three weeks into training, I'm like, let me out. Like, <laughs> like put me on ready. the floor. Like I'm ready to book. So I felt relatively comfortable with the carrier sales aspect early on because I just went and asked a lot of really, really, really strong performers what they did and then spent time learning from them. I love that. Let's talk about it. How does a freight broker make money? Right. And and not the obvious answer, right? By brokering freight. Like what are those intangible things that a, a good freight broker does to be able to uh, maximize their earning potential? So you mean at the individual contributor level, like if I'm a yes, carrier, sir. if I'm a carrier sales rep? Yes, sir. Okay. So if you're a carrier sales rep, one of the best ways to make money consistently is to develop relationships with carriers that have capacity regularly in a particular market. So your team is always going to be working on transactional shipments and you want to book those because depending on the market right now, spot market's not very hot. It's very, very dry. Um, but typically spot market loads pay more than a contracted load, right? So you want to book those too. You'll make good money. But the bread and butter is in the consistent freight. So if I'm a new person, I might get you know enamored by the shiny object of like the day of freight that is transactional and you got to cover it. But the best money is in the load that picks up every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and it might only be 12% margin, 10% margin, right? It's not a crazy rip. The spread isn't huge, but I'm the person that finds the carrier that takes that every single time. So it doesn't even hit the board. I find the truck that is always in St. Louis that needs to go to Atlanta. We agree on the rate. The service is where it needs to be. And now I walk into my day and I've already got seven loads booked because I have consistent carriers that run the same loads every time they come up. So it's mm -hmm. kind of like putting yourself in a position to have this long-term book of business that you don't have to constantly be working on. Like I always book the three St. Louis to Atlanta's with the same carrier. We have this contract for a year. Great. I got a year's worth of books right there. The best reps find consistent capacity and they go and hunt and cover contracted freight. How do you go about that? How do you how do you go about uh, uh, fostering those kind of relationships to make sure you have the right carriers for the job? So it's actually two sided. The internal sales process is as important, if not more important than the external sales process selling to a carrier. So Explain. if I'm if I'm in a brokerage today, there are sales reps that have access to freight and sometimes that freight just gets covered before other people get a chance to see or work on it because of relationships. I know Ramel, so hey man, he covers my Atlanta to Miami's every time and I just send him a message before I even get them and he gets them booked. So no one even knows those loads are available. So I got to spend time developing relationships with the sales reps, the ops reps, the AM that have this freight so that they know that I'm reliable and somebody they can count on to execute that business on the carrier sales side. When it goes when it goes to actually finding carrier capacity, you want to use all the tools at your disposal. Every brokerage is a little bit different, but some like super easy ones that everyone typically has access to carrier 411, DAT, truck stop, things like this. I would advise new reps, 
carrier 401, best place to go because some of those carriers are not posting their day of capacity or their capacity on DAT or truck stop. And so you may be one of the only people from your organization actively reaching out to them to foster a relationship. So now you get to take that and say, I'm your point of contact. You know, my job is to find the right type of freight for you. Where do you normally like to run? Where do you find your trucks to be available? What's the hardest truck you have to cover? Where do you need your backhauls from? What type of freight do you like? All these different things. Or where do your customers send you outbound and on what frequency? Okay, cool. I used to work with a very, very dominant carrier um, on the East Coast. I love these cats so much. They're by far and away my favorite carrier. I still call my favorite dispatcher today. His name's Ray. He would pick up. We chop it up for hours. And they run for a lot of pharmaceutical companies and some of the largest like grocery warehouses, craft, they work for AP, uh, HP Hood, all these companies, right? And all they would ever do is ask me to find them backhauls to their three main terminals, which were like Illinois, Georgia, Tennessee, actually for Illinois, Georgia, Tennessee, and Virginia. And so as I developed relationships with all their dispatchers, what I, fo- what I was focused on was inbound based on what I knew they needed. And there was really never a need to offer them other freight because I spent so much time profiling what they needed that I could look at the board a month in advance and say, there's a New Jersey to Richmond, Virginia. They're going to take that. I already know because they told me what they like. And so I've spent time developing that. So if you're a new rep building your carry sales profile or your carry sales portfolio, you want to spend time looking at consistent freight the organization has and then profiling carriers that like to run similar lanes. And in that process, like you don't always find the right partner. But I might call Ramel and he's like, yo, I don't need New Jersey to Atlanta, but every week I got a truck in Syracuse that I need to send to Miami. Great. Every Monday I'm asking you, do you cover your Syracuse to Miami? And I'm going to look for freight like that to offer to you, but you've got to work very far in advance. And it's like kind of tough because you won't see the fruits of your labor for a while, Mm. Um, but long-term you end up doing better because you have more consistent capacity. How long did it take you to get good at negotiating? I don't think it took me very long because I was used to negotiating with people, but it took me a while to understand the nuances of the market to know how to negotiate. So explain that. You could, I could say, hey, all right, let's say it's produce season and it's between April and the end of July. And I'm trying to get someone to run an outbound load from Miami up to Philadelphia. It's a produce load and the market is paying very well. If I don't understand that the market's paying well, regardless of how well I negotiate or who the broker is or who the customer is, I might try to stick my ground and the carrier is like, you're an idiot. I can go get paid 6000 and you're offering me four, like, no, thank you. I'm going to hang up. I'm out of here. Right. So there's nuance to understanding, okay, today the market rate is X and I can look at data points to see what that is. How many times have we covered Miami to Philly? We covered it at 5,500 bucks every day. The last week I look at DAT going rates, I don't know, 54, 56. The carrier asks you for 56 and you're like, the best I can do is 4,000. Okay. That's not negotiating. Like you're not paying attention to (laughs) the dynamics of the market to know what's going on. 
Right. Uh, so that was helpful, just getting familiar with what market rates were, because then you understand, okay, they might ask for 56, you might have $5,600 in the load. And if you're reasonable and good at negotiating, like that's a break even, or really the company's losing money because there's still overhead to cover with all that, right? So you got paid 5,600, you pay the carrier 5,600, you don't make any money, you're losing some money. Right. If you're good at negotiating and you develop relationships, I'll be straight up. Yo, Ramel, I could pay you 56, but like that's honestly everything we got in this, right? So any chance you can meet me at 55? And if this is a relationship with a carrier that I work with all the time and we load, I load them a ton and there's going to be lots of, you know, lots more options for me to be able to pay them well in the future. A lot of times people are like, yeah, man, I, a hundred bucks. I can do that. That's a fair rate. Maybe the spread between what they're looking at is a load for 52 with a broker. They don't really like sort of like, no, nah, I'm not going to take that a load for 6,000 with another broker. They don't really like, or they're not set up with. So like, I don't want that. So like, oh, well, I'll take this from Ramel for 55. Cause like, I like him. So you want to think about all these different dynamics of building that relationship to understand how to get the best rate. So a fair negotiation is basically when what both sides um, win. Well, well, how would you end that question? How would how would you end that statement? I don't know that they're okay. So like I've read the book Never Split the Difference, and it's really good. It's by Chris Voss and talks about how to negotiate things of that nature. Um, you know, you'll hear people say that like a fair negotiation is when both parties feel that they got what they were looking for out of the deal or out of the transaction. Like, yeah, sure. That's fair. Um, but the negotiation is fair. is kind of like subjective, right? Like mm -hmm. there are going to be times where the market is in a carrier's favor. There are going to be times where the market is in a broker or shipper's favor. And then you're going to have people that'll say, well, you should pay more than that. Well, you should pick, you should charge less than that when the market is not your, like, so I, like, it, it goes both ways. So as a broker, is it, is it your job to communicate that to them or is it their job as a carrier to already know that? I think there is dual responsibility if relationships are where they are or where they should be to talk about market volatility, cost. When I was on the carrier side, developing relationships. Most of my carrier partners had anywhere between 10 and 100 trucks. So they weren't small. They were not massive mega fleets, but I was able to spend time asking them like, what's your true cost on a weekly basis for this one truck? They would tell me that. And so if they gave me the option to exclusively book that truck, I would deliver to them options that got them well above what they were trying to pay that driver. They might say, I want to make 6,000 bucks on this truck this week. This is 2014. So somebody might hear that now and go, that's not feasible for right. what we run. Fantastic. 2014, Carrie tells me I want to make six grand on this truck per week. I say, fantastic. I'm going to put together a string of loads that get you at or well above that. But it's hard for me to be able to help them if I don't know what their cost or what their goals are annually. I would spend a lot of time doing business plans with carriers to say, Talk to me about what you want to make for your business. Like, how many loads do you want to take from us? How much money do you want to be making on a monthly or an annual basis so that we can plan proactively to get you the right kind of freight to get you to where you want to be? So it's a long-winded answer to say it goes both ways. Today, the market is very slow. It's very depressed. So you're going to have partners that are going to go, hey, man, like, can't you pay me more? And like, unfortunately, the answer is no. Like, shippers aren't paying more. Other partners 
right? They're not paying more. There's there's no more pie to split. Like this is what it is. There are going to be times where the market ticks up and fantastic, right? We'll share more of the revenue in a positive manner and everyone makes more money, but that's it's a nature of both sides. Also on the carry side, if something doesn't work for you, it doesn't work. That's okay. Like no hard, you know, no harm, no foul. I had carrier partners that were all very good and would run similar lanes, but I knew that some would take rates that were cheaper and some would take rates that were more expensive. Their costs were different. So I think it goes down to understanding your cost, right? If this works for you and it's profitable, fantastic. If you want to take the load, take the load. If it's not profitable, it doesn't make sense. Don't take the load. Mm. Got it. Did you did you have or I could say, do you have because you're still selling uh, any routines that that you do before you begin to sell? Like, let's say you're going into, you know, into your office space or wherever you're selling at in the morning. Like, what, what do you do to get yourself motivated to, to sell all day? Right. Because you're literally in a chair on a phone doing the same thing for eight to ten hours. How do you prepare yourself mentally for that and how do you motivate motivate yourself to keep on going? What, what are your secrets for that? So I think it's important to have a plan for the day and then a plan for what you want your month, quarter or year to look like, because it's a lot easier to work towards those things if you know where you want to get to. So let's say that you have a fitness goal and you say, I want to run a mile at this pace by the end of the year. Well, if you don't run at all and then you say October, November, you're going to start running you're probably not going to get there. Right. So That's right. for me, it was a lot about setting the goals, right? I want to book X amount of shipments, or if I'm on the shipper facing sales side and I'm managing a group of reps and helping them build their book of business, right? We'd like to see this account do X, how many loads, what revenue margin we want to add this many new customers. Okay, cool. Let's put that on a monthly quarterly or annual annual basis. And that right there is motivation because I know what I'm working towards. To be honest with you, I don't feel like selling every day. Some days I don't want to sell at all, right? But I want to make money and I want to put myself in a better position financially. I would like to grow my career. So rooting myself in the goals and the why of why I do what I do like today, I enjoy building the business that I have. It's a lot of fun. I have an incredible team. And I don't feel like anything of what I'm doing is selling because it's just a lot of fun talking to people. But <laughs> right. like, dude, of course, there's days where you're like, ah, oh, man, I got to go to this call. Like, I don't really feel like it. Like, <laughs> you know, I'm not like excited about it. But my goals don't care if I'm excited. They could care less. You don't get them or you're not like the time's going to pass. Um, it doesn't matter how excited I am about it. A year from now, I'm going to look and go, did I do what I said I was going to do? If no, then I probably didn't put the work in or I wasn't committed enough to make that happen. So for me, it's more about outlining what I want and then committing myself to working towards it, whether or not I want to, because a lot of times I don't, I'm like, I don't feel like doing that. <laughs> You're right. 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 Who's your favorite uh, sales guru? Who, who, who do you like? Like out of the people that are out there on social media, who do you follow? Yeah. So one of my favorites, his name is Mike Weinberg. He has a lot of really good content. I actually saw him live last year at a lean solutions group event in Vegas. They brought him in as a speaker and had a chance to spend some time chatting with him. He's incredible at what he does. But when I first got into sales management and brokerage, I read his book, Sales Management Simplified. And it's by far and away the best sales management book I've ever read. It's one of the best sales books I've ever read. So I had a chance to pick that up. And I really just like his content. And here's why I like it. Some of the sales content that I see, because I've been in sales for so long, I've seen and read a lot of different books like the Brian Tracy's and 
all there's just so much content, challenger sales, spend selling, all these different things. And when I read Mike Weinberg's content, it just sounds like a person talking about business. It doesn't sound like somebody trying to sell you something. And I think that's what's off-putting for a lot of like sales processes or people that are in sales in general, because people don't like to feel like they're being sold to. They do like people to solve problems for them or present solutions that make sense. And when I read Mike's sales content or his processes, I'm like, I don't know, man, that just makes sense. Like, it's not very pushy. It's not at all passive. It's assertive. It's stuff that you can follow if you want to get results, but it's not over the top. Like, I don't know. I don't resonate with, I hate stuff like that. It drives me insane. Give, give me an example of like a takeaway or something that he said that like resonated with you or that you do to this day. So when I manage sales reps and sales teams, very, very particular about a monthly review every single month without fail. And I got this process from Sales Management Simplified. And in that book, he just talks about having to do this one-on-one -on -one with his manager every month. And he would be like, man, every month, I know this dude's going to ask me how many customers I landed, what my revenue was, what that was in comparison to my goal or the target and you know how I ranked against the rest of the field. And so you do that a couple of times and you're like, I better come to this meeting ready to rock because I know he's going to ask me. And then I started doing that when I managed a shipper facing sales team. And I realized how effective it was because we're going to agree on what our goal for February is. We'll say we want to move 100 shipments across this many customers at this level of margin. We want to add this many new customers. And then let's do that at a load level or customer level to say ABC customer. We think they'll give us 35 loads. Last month they gave us 30, but I feel like I can get five more. All right, cool. How are we going to do that? Well, I've got a planner I've got a good relationship with. And so if I spend a little bit more time with them, I think I can win a couple extra spot loads. Great. Let's do that, right? Let's do that across all your accounts. We'll aggregate that and say, okay, your goal's 100 loads, but your book is saying you're going to get 80, right? That's what we're estimating the book can produce. So we got to go find 20 more. And then we meet again end of February, right? That's the February goal. We meet the end of February and say, how do we do? Okay. We moved 97 lows. The goal was hundred. All right. Not bad. 97% of what we were trying to do, right? Okay. What do you think is the reason why we didn't get there? Well, you know what? This particular account, I was counting on getting 10 loads from, they weren't busy. So unfortunately I only got two. Okay, cool. Not bad. What about the other ones? Okay. Well, this one, I thought I was only going to get two. I got 10. So they made up for some of the gap, right? But Learning that at an early age, I think I was 26. Yeah, I think I was 26 when I started managing that team. It just taught me that you need to inspect what you expect, which is a quote from my, my mm, football coach, Coach Ash. I like that. I like inspect that. what you expect, right? So if I'm expecting you to do X, I need to check on that and give you the proper metrics or outline the way you're supposed to go get that done. Otherwise, it's not really fair for the person if I have expectations and you don't know what they are. Like, how are you supposed to go do that, right? In my head, I'm like, ah, you know, Ramel, I want you doing 200 loads a month, but I never told you, I didn't tell you how to get there. And you're like, I'm doing 60, I feel great. <laughs> I, if I didn't tell you what I wanted you to go do, that's not a really good leadership direction. It's not really smart of me um, to not give you the clear expectations about how to go build your book or, you know, what good looks like. So that principle, hey, 
every month, we're going to come in, we're going to talk about what we want to do, what we want to see these accounts go and perform or how, how we want to see them perform. And then at the end of that month, we'll check in, see how we did. Got it. So you spend what, how many, how many years at Coyote before you? I was at, yeah. So I was at Coyote from January of 2014 through January of 2017, January so of 2017. Yep. January of 2017, I moved over to Transport America. I was there for four months, and then I left there to help co-found Molo, and we launched that in July of 2017. Why did you leave Coyote? I got paid a lot of money to go join Transport America. I loved Coyote. What it role? was tech. What role? I was, Different role or same role? Yeah, so I got a director-level role with Transport America to be a director of business development over a brokerage that they recently purchased in Chicago, and... They paid me a lot of money to leave the role that I was in. And right. I was like, man, I don't know if y'all gonna pay me that much money. I'm out of here. But not that I loved Coyote. It was sick. I had a ton of opportunity. I was making good money. Uh, but it was one of those opportunities where I'm like, if you're going to pay me that, I will leave. Right. You yeah. almost like said like you, you, the number was so high. It's like they probably it's like you can't you just the offer you can't refuse, basically. Yeah, right? I was make. Yeah, I was 26 years old. They offered me a ton of money and I was like, say no more. Like over 100, 150. Yeah, it was great. Very juicy. <laughs> you're good. Yeah. All right. So so moving forward. So uh, you're at Transport America. You stayed there for one year, you said? I was there for four months. Four months? Mm-hmm. You barely got to make any of the money that they gave you, man. It was good, though. <laughs> it was good no. while it lasted. No, it was good. <laughs> All right. So then you start connecting with the guys back at Coyote. You guys start talking about this dream of starting your own thing. And you launch Molo. Yes. Right. Tell me about that. Tell me about the, you know, inception, the beginning days. What did that look like? Yeah. So we started talking about, okay, how are we going to go get talent? What do we think our differentiators are? What type of customers do we think are good? How are we going to go to market and get people to pay attention to us? Um, you know, what's it look like to go find a TMS platform? what are we doing from like an office perspective, like all the beginning startup stuff that you kind of take for granted when you work for an organization was stuff that we had to figure out the first couple months before we launched. And it was super stressful, but a lot of fun, man. Like you roll your sleeves up and you start to insert yourself in these things that you're not necessarily prepared for, but that's how you grow. That's how you get better. So you work through all that stuff. We I'll what never was the biggest it. challenge out of all of that before you move forward? Those things you just named a good a group of things and they're all great questions. But what was the toughest part about that initial, let's say, three to six months? Yeah. So pre pre launch or after launch? Pre launch, like when you're when you're ideating, right? Because you're like yeah. thinking about all these differentiators and all these different things. Like, what was mm -hmm. the toughest nut to crack? All right, guys, Truck and Hustle has now partnered with Transpo CFO, powered by Venning. Transpo CFO offers a streamlined monthly subscription for businesses to consolidate their accounting, payroll, and tax needs into one flat monthly rate, saving businesses a tremendous amount of time and money while making their financial operations much smoother for the long road ahead. Check out Transpo CFO in the description below and tell them Truck and Hustle sent you. Now, let's get back to the show. The hardest part is probably the unknown because you are writing a bunch of stuff down that you think makes sense, but you don't know how the market's going to respond. So we're going to say, this is how we service freight, or these are the type of customers that we go after, or 
we're going to go to try and recruit a bunch of people and get them to come work here. Yo, what if this doesn't work? <laughs> you you right. just don't know. So the hardest part is, is truly the unknown. You've got you know, a sound business acumen. You're like, I, I know how to move freight. I know how to call carriers. I, I think I know who good customers are. I know what good talent looks like. I've got an idea of you know maybe what some good tech platforms are, but there's always unknown. And coming from a space where I worked at Kimberly-Clark, probably a $16 billion company when I was there. Then I worked at Coyote, north of a billion dollar company. I worked at Transport America. They were owned by TFI, Transforce, multi-billion dollar organization. They got a person for everything. So the unknown's not that unknown. You get this thing, you go, oh, go to the contracts person. You don't know how to price that, go to the this person. Strip all of that away. We're confident, right? All of us feel like we could go conquer things, but you don't really know. So in my opinion, it's just the unknown, right? You're going to put your best foot forward, but you don't really know how it's all going to play out until you start until you start doing work. It makes sense. Did you have a business plan or like a forecast of what you guys would do first yeah. year? Like yeah. what would that look like? It was just scaling out the revenue numbers based on what we thought revenue per load would be, load count based on what we thought we could do with the group that we had, which was myself, Fogrich, and Stefan, and then a couple of hires on the carrier sales side early on, and then scaling out hiring to say, okay, if we think we're covering X amount of loads, how many people do we need for that? How much margin do we think that produces? Um, it, I mean, some of that stuff is kind of throwing things at a wall to see what sticks it. Um, Got it. And, really and how did you work. get your initial opportunities? Were they like relationships that you had before? And did you like focus on a specific niche or did you just kind of just see what was going on in the market and just, you know, get whatever was out there? A lot of it was cold mixed with relationships. So it's just a really small world. Shippers and contacts move from one company to another. So if you develop a relationship with someone and they work at ABC Shipper and they move to another one, it's not the hardest to maintain that relationship and have a new opportunity to onboard somebody. So a lot of cold outreach conferences, cold calling, LinkedIn, things of that nature, cold emailing, and then leveraging shippers that we were working with to figure out, okay, we're picking up from this company and they're a vendor. Cool. Like let's call them directly to see if we can haul their freight. Let's find a bunch of companies that look very much so like this food and beverage company we're working with. Is there someone else around the corner that we could be working with just like them? So kind of connecting those dots, but a lot of cold outreach, tons of it. So, so you start with the four of you and how do you start to build your sales team and start building the team? Talk about, you know, scaling and growing the business. Yeah. So what we started with, there were three people to begin with, um, okay. Mathis, Fogrich and myself. Um, and then we hired a carrier sales rep that did kind of like, everything, track and trace, booked a little bit of freight, brought on another carrier sales rep that did primarily track and trace. This rep still works at Molo now, which is sick. So I've been there for a long time, seen the nice, whole thing. Yeah, let's go, baby. <laughs> and from there, we started adding different levels of support from an operations or AM perspective. So Vogrich um, played basketball at Michigan and another one of his good friends, his name is Blake McClymonds. He also played basketball at Michigan and then Blake worked at Coyote too. And so Blake was probably our fifth or sixth hire and he came over from a shipper. So he worked for a company on the shipping side and came over to join us and joined as a sales rep 
and he brought over the relationship he had with the shipper. They were one of our, really one of our first large enterprise style accounts that he had a pre-existing relationship with. And Blake is, I ain't gonna lie to you, one of the hardest working people I have worked with in my life. Like this dude's motor is insane. <laughs> and so you get somebody of that caliber that comes over just ready to put the work in, roll the sleeves up, do whatever. So he was just an incredible ad early on, brought an account, willing to do whatever. So he was one of our first, really like one of our first salespeople. And then Stefan, who ended up being the best sales rep at the organization by far and away, um, took a more sales focused role probably six to seven months in. So in the beginning, all of us are doing everything. You're calling customers, you're calling carriers, you're setting appointments, you're building loads, and then you start adding layers of operations, carrier sales support to help you get all that stuff done so you can focus on a particular part of the business. So probably six or six or so months in, Stefan starts to dedicate all of his time to selling and he got really good at it. So he's starting to knock down really good opportunities, enterprise style accounts, just really figuring it out. And before that, he never really sold to customers. He'd sold to carriers, large fleets, things like that. So Blake and Stefan were like the first salespeople really getting after it. All of us were doing different things to add accounts, but they spent a fair amount of their time building up new relationships. And then from there, as you start to scale the company, you add one or two sales reps here or there. You start to add more and more carrier reps. When I think about timing, we're probably a seven to eight person company from July through December. And then Ju July 17 through December of 2017. And then Silver joined March of 2018 once his non-compete was up. And we just started hammering hiring. So we mm. probably had maybe 15 people in March of 2018. So mostly carrier sales and operations. So you add new accounts, you need more people to execute the freight, both operations and carrier sales. Silver joins, we start hiring a ton. So now you're doing more class or cohort style hiring where you add three to five people at a clip. And I'll never forget our first big sales class. It was july of 2018 there were probably 10 people in that class some of them are still at molo today they're some of the highest performers that have done really really well and i just remember sitting in a room training those people because i had the opportunity which was really cool to build our training and development and onboarding which i really enjoyed and i just remember sitting there going yo these people believe in us like <laughs> you know we're still a small we're like a small company, nothing too crazy. We probably did 20 million, 25 million total in our first 12 months, which is not bad. Um, but we're small, right? And there's a bunch of big brokerages in Chicago. So like, why would you come work here? Right. And you start right. to look around and you're like, man, like we could do this. People right. believe in what we're working on. So, so that part was really cool. Um, but you continue to scale the organization up. Your question was around how do you build the sales team? Yeah. You go and find people that have either done it before. So have they built a book of business somewhere else? Are they a recommendation from somebody that you know? Do you know anything about what they're able to do from a, a selling perspective? Or you try to cultivate talent internally and bring them up through the organization and then give them the opportunity to go sell to shippers. But early on, a lot of it was external hiring. How did you fund the business in the early years? Did you bootstrap and did you guys ever take funding? We took funding our original 
funding partner was a shipper that actually gave us freight to service and seemed like it made sense, right? They had a bunch of freight. They were a produce brokerage and they gave us money to start the business. And then they were bought out by another group of investors that we brought in. And then that group of investors was bought out by Jeff Silver, who um, Andrew Silver's dad started Coyote, CEO of that business. Um, just an absolute legend in the industry, a great person to have in your corner, someone that all of us obviously learned a lot from. I remember doing my About Me presentation in January of 2014 at Coyote in front of Jeff. And I was like, man, the big dog sitting here listening to me talk. <laughs> right? It's crazy. And, um, you know, he came in later, probably two years, two and a half years into the Molo journey and became our main investment partner um, that helped scale the organization until we were acquired by ArcBest. Um, we didn't go do a formal raise where we went out and you know, brought mm, in okay, a bunch of different. Like, okay, gotcha. No form, but Jeff bought out the partners that we had and, and funded the business. Um, so those initial we were partners were they angels or was it like a seed round or how'd that work? The initial. It was just it was just a small group of actually Matt Bogrich's. I want to say family, friends through a relationship he had um, that were very, very successful business professionals um, that wanted to you know, have an opportunity to invest in an organization like us. Um, they bought out our previous investors, came in, they funded the business, Jeff came in, bought them out, and the rest- Got it. What, what, are those, what are those initial uh, funds go to? When you're, when you're initially seeding the business, like what type of things, office space? Everything. Yeah. So like, out. yeah, you got to go buy computers. You need to buy desks. You need to be able to pay for an office space. You've got general like OPEX. So salaries, benefits, tech cost, all that stuff. Can you share what you started with and the, what you, what type of funding you started with? No, no, no. Okay. We'll move forward from that one. Yeah. All right. So you start, so you start growing a business um, and you guys get to how many reps when you're at peak? The peak of the business? Yeah, like, like, well, we used to, this business business still exists yeah. now, but for you, like, before you, you guys actually exited, like, what did the business look like? Yeah, so we did six hundred and fifteen million dollars in revenue in twenty twenty one, and we probably had three hundred three hundred thirty people or so at that point. Wow. Yeah, and ArcBest the deal closed November of twenty twenty one. Okay, so November twenty twenty one. Why do you decide to sell? So What's there, the conversation like? Yeah, so it costs a lot of money to run a freight brokerage. It's very capital intensive. And so in order to grow to be a billion dollar freight brokerage, you have to have a lot of cash in the bank. And the options are you go and do a formal raise. So roadshow, you get in front of people, you figure out the right partners, whether it be a VC or you know a different strategic partner that might want to inject capital, you get in front of them or... There's a strategic partner option like a company like ArcBest that says, hey, we're interested in acquiring you all for you know whatever reasons. We'll kind of dig into those different things here. But that makes a lot of sense if you want to give your chance, your business the chance to have the runway to scale. So it costs, I can't exaggerate this enough, millions of dollars to run a brokerage that has 300 people and it's transacting millions of dollars of loads on a monthly basis, right? So the hardest part 
is floating the capital. You have to pay carriers relatively quickly. Then you have to wait for your customers to get paid. If you work with any enterprise customers, pay terms are north of 30 days typically, and you want to collect as fast as you can, but you might not be collecting on some of those enterprise customers for 45 days, maybe 60 days. So you have to have a lot of cash to float paying carriers, paying people, paying salaries, all that stuff. And You're not so, factoring at all? No. Okay. And so in order to do that, well, we did have a, a line of credit with a, a prominent bank and you know, we were Got able it. to get cash in that manner, but we didn't factor the invoices. Um, and so in order to do that, you got to have a lot of cash. So you either go do a massive raise, grab a couple hundred million dollars to extend the runway, or a company like an ArcBest might have interest in you. Um, and it ended up making a lot of sense just based on some strategic initiatives they had to grow a truckload brokerage and acquire an organization like us. Got it. So um, when that event does happen, what are the emotions that you go through? I think the first emotion is somewhat of disbelief. You're like, wait, did this really happen? How old are you at this time? I was 31. 31 years old. Yeah. So you're about to sell a company for hundreds of millions of dollars. Crazy stuff. And yeah, very and, rare too. That you can't really talk to all your friends about that. Most no, yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. So I think the first thing is somewhat disbelief because you spent so much time developing this business and you're building it with these incredible people that have poured so much of their life into making this thing real. It was an idea. Then you go through the baby steps of having a couple of people that work on the team and a couple of customers, and then. You go to the next step. We're like, oh, we kind of have a brand. Like people know who we are. And then you get to the point where someone goes, we want to buy your organization, right? So the first thing for me personally is kind of disbelief. You're like, yo, this is nuts. Like they, <laughs> they really right. want to do this. So so that's the, the was the first emotion for me. And I think the second one was probably this crazy full circle realization that this goal that we had to build the best full truckload brokerage in the space and grow faster than anyone had, which we did, came to fruition. Like we said, we were going to do this thing and we really did it. So early on, you asked, what makes y'all different? What were the differentiators? If we say we were going to do something, we did it, right? And that's why customers like to work with us. That's why our people wanted to be part of the team because we were solid. We say we're doing something, we're getting it done. So to have had this thing that was just an idea in April of 2017, and then to have a multi-billion dollar organization like ArcBest identify us as someone that they would want to acquire is nuts to kind of bring it full circle. So it's just really, really cool. So a little bit of disbelief, kind of like full circle moment. What'd you do after you, uh, after you sold? We had to work on the integration because it was a lot of work. So ArcBest is a prominent supply chain provider that owns a fleet of LTL, they own an LTL carrier, ABF freight. So predominantly an LTL provider, but they had a brokerage that was probably doing 250, $300 million in truckload revenue. And then they've got all their other service lines. So you've got LTL, you've got a managed services division, you have intermodal, international, they are the real deal. Publicly traded company. They got all these different services, extremely profitable. They just do they run a good business. 
Right. So they buy an organization like Molo, and now you got to figure out how do you integrate the two. And the first hurdle is how do you not interrupt what's going on with customers? Because you don't want them to stop giving you business because they think, man, maybe this acquisition isn't good for us. You're not going to perform the same or, you know, people aren't going to do what they used to do, right? You're not the old Molo anymore. So the first thing is how do you smooth through the integration so that there are no interruptions with customers? And so on the truckload side, that means you got to take all these shipments that were being transacted and this other brokerage, ArcBest original brokerage that they had. And that starts to transition over to Molo. So you do that over time, slowly get everything in the same system. You have to work through account ownership. You know, a hundred year old multi-billion dollar company has probably transacted with most customers before, especially when you have a very good LTL carrier that you own. So now you got to figure out, okay, Ramel over there at ArcBest owns this company, right? He works with this company. And then Will over there also works with this company. So who's the best rep to continue selling to that organization? Um, there's structure overlap between different departments. Uh, there's just it's a huge lift um, from an execution perspective. Got it. What's the biggest misconception people have about selling a business? If you could put put point your finger at one, I don't know what I would say the biggest misconception is about it maybe that um everything is like i don't know smooth after you get done like there's a lot of work to do like someone mm. agrees that they want to purchase your organization great deal gets closed fantastic but like that's when the work really starts it, right. it starts once the acquisition's like done because now you need to figure out a way to integrate two organizations like that's just a, it's a lot of work involved makes a lot of sense all right and that brings us to date um, now you have something new that you're working on that you just now announced a couple weeks ago. Tell us about Journey. Tell us about the new Journey, sir. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, from your water bottle. Yeah, how about it? <laughs> so I left Molo in May of 23. And, you know, kind of crazy to think about leaving a business that you help co-found and, and scale. So not at all an easy decision. But I was like, man, I feel really good about what we've done. I have still great relationships with the people that, you know, we built the business with and great relationships with the ArcBass exec team. So, you know, it's a tough decision, but I'm like, man, I think it's time for me to walk away and go figure out what to work on next. And that's how I landed on Journey. I thought for a long time, like, man, what type of company do I want to build? What would I have fun doing? And how do I stay as close as I can to brokerage? with you know with having to not compete and to me recruiting made a lot of sense so journey is a transportation freight brokerage focused recruiting company consulting and training organization so most of the customers we work with have an annual revenue anywhere between about 50 million and 750 million um, we help them find talent across the board a lot of the roles that we source are executive level roles and high level sales roles. However, we will do really any role in brokerage that's an experienced role. So not green, fresh talent, but someone that's coming from the industry looking for a new position or an organization is looking to source talent and bring them in that, you know, the person kind of already knows what to do. Um, we also engage with a fair amount of companies in a consulting capacity. So what I think is unique 
about what we're doing and some of the experience that I have. Like I had the opportunity to see a coyote grow, spent my first three years there. I had an opportunity to co-found, build and scale an organization like Molo and see a lot of what it takes to take a company from zero to a hundred million, you know, hundred to two fifty, two fifty to five hundred. And in twenty twenty two we did one point two five billion dollars in revenue, right? So those are all different markers across the board in terms of complexity of business, execution, style of person you need to lead and succeed at different areas or different times. And the conversations I have now are so fun because I'm talking to brokerage owners and CEOs the same way I've been talking because I've been in brokerage. So it's not like they're not having a conversation with someone that that doesn't understand their daily struggle. Um, and I think that makes it a lot more, at least fun for me. It seems to be very engaging and fun for them because the relationships have continued to grow and the opportunities keep coming. Um, so that, that part's unique. And I just really love sales training. I love training and onboarding people um, just in general, because I think if you do that properly, you're able to retain and get a better quality style of candidate that wants to be in your organization because they see that you're invested in them and that you want to see them go succeed. So we do a lot in the sales training capacity, um, a lot of onboarding type stuff just to help people understand how to get their teams up and rolling, a lot of like process consulting for structure. Um, and it is, we launched officially November 27th, um, but I was doing it as like a proof of concept over the summer while I traveled in Europe, which is pretty sick. Um, yeah. And it's been really good so far. I love it. How, how do you how do you think about scaling an agency model like this? And um, how hands on are you? I am as hands on as I'm in it. If you saw my calendar right now, that bad boy is booked all day. I couldn't be more. <laughs> I, I literally couldn't be more hands on if I wanted to. And I absolutely love it because I don't know everything there is to know about recruiting. I've never run a recruiting organization. This is the first time. And so it's really cool to learn something that you've never been exposed to, but I understand brokerage, right? So I'm like, I think I know what kind of people you want. Like, let's have a conversation about what that looks like and let me understand your organization. Um, so that part's super fun. I have one recruiter on my team right now who does sourcing and some business operations type stuff. I have a head of PR and marketing who is doing an incredible job. I'm so fortunate to have both of them. They're both longtime friends I've known for a while that are just, when I say crushing it, like I couldn't have a better team if I want to. It's absolutely nuts. And then on January 15th, we have another full-time recruiter coming on that has industry expertise. And I have been recruiting this person since it's been a long time. And I was like, <laughs> it's the first person I want to hire. I want you on the team. I feel like we could build something special. It'd be really cool. So they are starting on Monday and I am over the moon excited about that because I know what they're going to be able to do to help us grow the relationships they have, just the understanding the way this business works. But from a scaling perspective, I, I want to scale it responsibly to make sure that, you know, a couple things. I want to make sure that the recruiters on our team all have enough positions to work on actively because that to me is important. They're making a salary. They've got an opportunity to make commission based on placements, which is really cool because sometimes if you're an internal recruiter, you don't have an opportunity to make that bonus or that upside. So I love that because they can go and fill these positions and make really good money. Uh, but I want to make sure that each of them has enough roles to work on to make the money that they want to make. So I think by the end of the year, we probably end up having anywhere between three to four full-time recruiters. And right now, 
were able to manage the roles really well. I'm excited on Monday to be able to take on more and more because when our new recruiter joins, that just opens up more and more opportunities to go find more roles. Um, but to answer your question, it's fun to scale in a manner where you're like, I'm going to just pick and choose the best of the best. That's it. This isn't, I'm not going to go hire 20 people. I'm getting the top of the top. And then we're going to build this thing together. I don't know that I have the desire to like blow it up from a, I don't want to go rebuild Molo in a recruiting capacity, <laughs> right? Like I don't want to go have a thousand recruiters, at least not right now. Right. We might be talking in two years and I'm like, dude, we're rocking it. So, you know, maybe right. we're doing more, but I like the idea of being able to work with a small subset of companies that value what we offer. And what's cool is a lot of times we engage in a recruiting capacity and then they're like, Hey, can you help with this? And since we consult and do sales training, and we also have a platform that allows them to get on, take different classes, courses at their own pace and things of that nature. There's just so many different offerings. Um, yeah. That's exciting to me. It's funny because the the businesses, you know, Molo and the brokerage business that you built in, in Journey, it's a similar business model, right? You have like a, a customer who's looking for an outcome, right? And then you have like salespeople who are going out and finding the best people to kind of do the fulfillment for this outcome. So it's very, very uh, similar, right? And what you're doing. It, it is, man. You, you know, I had bare bones. It's really the same business. So <laughs> it, it is. And I see that more and more. You ask me how hands-on I am. I feel like I'm back on the brokerage floor, dude. <laughs> like, it's so sick. I love it. I was, right. I was in the office of a customer of ours yesterday, spending time talking to some of their reps and their exec team and you know, the energy is palpable. And then I go back and I've got all these screening calls and I'm working with, you know, my team to find the right talent. And I'm like, this is so fun. Like, <laughs> you know, it's, it's definitely not freight brokerage, right? Like I'm, you know, we're not moving loads or anything right, like that, right, but right. like the ability to have the opportunity to like build relationships, which is the same thing that I used to do and then execute at a high level. Like it's the same thing. Now it's just, you know, people and consulting and training stuff. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it. I love it. Okay. Um, hmm. All right. So now we're, we're, we, we talked about journey. Um, man, I think we're kind of at the end. Um, we've been talking for an hour and a half. Yeah. Um, you didn't ask me any personal stuff, man. You didn't ask me outside of where I, you know, except for where I grew up. Like, you know, where, where'd you grow up? Well, I, well, you did though. I th well, maybe you did. I grew up in Maywood. It's the west side of Chicago. Um, is it is that a dangerous area of Chicago? Uh, it's not the nicest area of Chicago. I'll tell you that much. Is I'm that not from, is like, the Kanye suburbs. West from there? No, is, he's is not. King Von from there? Uh, it's not. It's not <laughs> far from where King Von is from. Okay. Um, yeah, but it's it's the west side. It's ten miles directly west of the Loop. Um, yeah, but it's not did, a great neighborhood. How, how was how was your childhood, man? Did you have a a, a rough upbringing, or was it kind of like uh, you know cool, like middle class? Like what was yeah. your childhood? What was your childhood yeah. like? I definitely wouldn't call my childhood rough by any means. It was very much so middle class. Like both of my parents worked full time and were very much so like in me and my brother's life, like taking us to all the sports, supporting us through all the stuff. Uh, they taught me a lot about just like hard work. Like I watched both of them like bust their butts to provide for me and my brother and the schools in my neighborhood weren't very good. Like the public schools are not very good. And so 
they both worked their butts off to put me and my brother through private school because they're like, we're not going to put you through the same experience that we had growing up in Chicago, going to some schools (laughs) that like my dad is from the Austin neighborhood and my mom grew up in K-Town and they're just like rough neighborhoods. And so they're like, we're not going to put you through some of the stuff that we had to work through, um, which they are my two favorite people in the world. I love my mom and dad. Like they are my biggest supporters. They've always had my back. And from a young age, I was taught that like, you got to value the things that are put in front of you and make the most of the opportunities that you have. Like not everybody has it like this, right? Like, you know, not everybody has the opportunity to get access to really good schooling. So like make the most of it. Right. Or like not everybody gets a chance to play sports and like do all this stuff, like really, really take advantage of it. And for me, I'm like, I don't know, man, if my parents are going to sacrifice at that clip to give me access to certain things, I better be willing to go do the work. So I just, I have a lot of respect for them because their lives, like they could have lived real different, buy new cars, you know what I'm saying? Do different stuff, all these things to like live it up. And they're like, nope, we're going to send y'all to school. Like y'all going to school. And yeah. so um, I just, I, I love my parents a ton. I respect, you know, what they did to help me get to where I am. What did they both like work jobs? Like what, what, what did yeah, they yeah. do? Your, your yeah, mom so, and dad do? So my mom was a telecommunication specialist at a hospital. Um, called, it was Mary and Joy Rehab in, in Whedon. So she did a bunch of phone stuff for them. Um, and my dad was a paramedic okay. uh, for like 30 years in Schiller Park. Yeah. So he was used to being in really crazy scenarios. My dad is hilarious. Crazy guy. I could imagine that, man. I could imagine being a paramedic in Chicago. It was nuts. Wow. Yeah. So he used to tell me some crazy, <laughs> some crazy. So he's a pretty intense dude, but he's funny because I feel like if you're used to being in those high pressure scenarios, like you yeah. roll up and, you know, somebody's in a car accident, you got to do this stuff to stabilize them and get them to the hospital. You got to have a little levity. Um, you can't be too stressed out all the time because like your job is stressful. For sure. For sure. Yeah. I, I, Chicago's a beautiful city, man. It's actually it's actually top three, top three for me, like in Come cities. On now. I love Great. it, man. It's 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 amazing. Like the mid the mag mile and yeah. you know just the aesthetic out there. Like when you're walking around, as long as you're downtown. When I'm out there, I stay in the same area. I usually go and stay at the Sofitel downtown, mm-hmm. and I just stay around there. But I love it, man. It's like one of my favorite it's cities. It's great. Next time you're out here, let me know. I'll show you a couple things. We'll have a good time. There, I mean, there's just so much to see. It's great. Yeah, we 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 definitely got to connect. Well, yeah. we could talk. We could talk forever. I know you have a hard stop coming up. I know you got things going on. Um, before I let you go, though, it's traditional on this show, man. We always have to give a final thought, you know, for our audience, just something spiritual, something entrepreneurial, just something to leave the hustle fam with. And then we got to let know, let people know where they connect with you and learn more about yourself and learn more about journey, man, and what you're working on. So let's start with where they can find you for people who don't know um, who you are and where they can learn more about journey. I am very active on LinkedIn, Will Jenkins, all of my social Handles are at Will Jenkins WCJ. Journey is also very active on LinkedIn. So you can look us up through Journey. We are also very active on social media as well. And all of our handles are at Journey Delivers. And then our website is journeydelivers.com. And my, my email is Will at Journey Delivers, but easiest to reach either LinkedIn or email. And both myself and the company pages are very active on most major social media. Got and it. Then, and then for our final thought, man, what do you want to leave the hustle fam with parting words? 
I think it's important to realize that you're capable of more than you might think you are at an earlier age or an earlier stage in your career. And that the only thing stopping you from getting there and going to get after it is maybe a little bit of fear, maybe a little bit of apprehension. But I promise you that if you just go take the leap and you give yourself a chance to go make it happen, you will not regret it. You might fail. Things might not work perfectly, but you're going to learn from it. And if I could give myself any advice at a younger age, it would just be, dude, don't be afraid to go get it right. It's okay to fail. Totally fine. Some of my best lessons I've ever had are from things that did not work. I have businesses I've tried to start that I spent a ton of money on that just completely flopped. But I have relationships and experiences from that that helped me get to the point where I was confident to help co-founder brokers like Molo and confident to go out and start this new recruiting business. So number one thing, man, like just don't be afraid to go get after it because the time will pass regardless whether or not you put the work in and you do not want to be sitting there 20 years from now going, I wish I would have, right? Just give it a shot. You're capable of more than you think you are. That's right. If you can't respect that, your whole perspective is whack. I have a good feeling you're going to make lightning strike twice, man. I think uh, this this journey thing is going to be a big success for you, man. Of course, I'm rooting for you and I look forward to just hearing more about it. And we got to do this again, man. This is like yeah. I could literally talk to you for like hours, but, I, you know, I know we got to cap it at, you know, man, <laughs> let, let me know when you want to jam again. This is incredible. I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Hustle fam, myself, Mr. Will Jenkins. Journey, we are out. If you twisted, confused, or stuck about trucks, don't be dumb. This is the place to come. Truck and hustle. Let's go.